Well, David, it's nice to see you again. We spoke with you last in January 2021. Uh, it feels like, you know, five years ago. A lot has still happened since then. We're still in some interesting times. How have you been? What's new with you? Well, I'm okay. Um, you know, I'm uh, spending a lot of time uh, on books and television-related things, but uh, still doing a lot of investing as well. And as you know, I have a new book coming out in a, a couple weeks about investing. Yeah. So um, last time we spoke, uh, you had written a book called How to Lead, which we kind of talked about. You had interviewed a bunch of different folks, you know, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, you know, world, world-class leaders. And um, in this new book, which w- we had a pleasure to, to read, thanks to your team for sending us a, an early copy, um, you, you've spoken to some world-class investors. How did you even come to decide to write this book? Like what sparked the initial idea? Well, I spent the last 35 years of my career more or less in the investing world. And so therefore, it's a world I'm now comfortable with. I wasn't trained as an investor in graduate school. I was trained as a lawyer. But I've now spent a lot of time, more than three decades in the investing world. And I thought I've learned uh, a fair bit about investing. And I obviously have contacts, which enable me to interview some of the leading leading people in the investment world. So I thought the combination would, would work out. And I spent about a year or so putting it together. And that's what I was going to ask. You know, it, it seemed as though How to Lead came out about, what was it, like a year and a half, two years ago, maybe? Right. I'm forgetting my timeline at this point. Uh, but it wasn't too long ago. Had you already thought about your next book? Because this book, How to Invest, is now your fourth book. Correct. Well, I'm, I'm trying, I'm making up for the fact that for the first 69 or 70 years of my life, I wrote no books. <laughs> And now I realize, uh, and I can do it, and, but I'm now older, and so I realize at some point the brain will probably collapse and I won't be writing books. So I'd like to keep writing them as much as I can. It takes about a year to do one of them, to do the interviews and writing and all the publishing related things. So I'm trying to on a schedule to try to do one a year. I was going to ask, what is your process? So you're obviously, you know, at least when it comes to how to lead and how to invest um, and, you know... I don't read as much as I should, but I have read these ones because I like your writing style and almost how it's, it's just very easy to read. It's, it feels like I'm sitting in an interview with you and you know your guest or your, you know, your subject. Um, what is your process like when it comes to writing and ideating how these books come to be? Well, what I do is I figure out who I want to interview for the books. And in some cases, I will have already done some of these interviews. In some cases, I have not. And then I, if I have to do a new interview, I will ask the person to do it. It became easier to do, honestly, when COVID came because the expectation is not that you show up in their office or in their home to interview them. You can do it by Zoom, and therefore, people are more willing to say yes. Um, so uh, once I figure out who I want to interview, I put the list together, figure out how to organize it, give it to the publisher. They come back and say, well, do this differently or do that differently. Then I do the interviews. I get the transcripts and I edit them down. And then I distill what they've told me in a kind of summary page or two. And then when I've done all that, I then begin to start the beginning of the book, which is to tell people my own views on investing. And uh, this book, as you know, has a fair amount of my own views on investing and how you should prepare for an investing career, why investing is a good career and so forth. And then when you put it all together, you kind of read it over several times. You say, is this going to be interesting to people or is it not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
you break up you break up um you know the the investments in three categories you know mainstream investments alternate alternative investments and then cutting edge investments so just just for the listeners you know mainstream investments include public equities real estate endowments um alternative investments include hedge funds and private equity and buyouts distressed debt vc and then cutting edge is more so like cryptocurrency spacs infrastructure esg some of the stuff that we've seen sort of more as of late and then um you know in each of these categories you have certain you know, world-class investors, how did you come to choose who to interview? Um, did you go based on sort of historic performance? Did you go based on just, you know, your personal relationship? Well, it's a combination. There's some people, I know most of the people in the book uh, reasonably well from my investment career, but I don't know everybody well. And some people I didn't know at all. Um, so I try to figure out in each category, who would be the one, two or three best people I could interview. And then I would uh, ask them if I could interview them. And some cases it's easy if they know me. Some cases not that easy. They don't know me and don't want to reveal their secrets. And then um, I, I try to do the interview in a way that will make it interesting when you read it and edit it down and, and so forth. But uh, of course, what I need to also do, and this is uh, important in, in any context, but certainly in this context, is not have only white old men. So um, it'd be very easy to do an investing book of old white men. <laughs> but I tried hard to have diversity. And if you notice some of the people in the book, they're people you probably didn't hear of, but they're African-American women or, or Hispanic uh, guys or uh, Afro-Chinese woman and people that have diversity in their background. And obviously um, not yet as well known as some of the old white men, but probably they will mm -hmm. be in five years or 10 years. You know, that's an interesting point, and I definitely want to, you know, touch on it when we get, I wanted to ask about ESG in general. It's a topic that I'm interested in, um, and how, you know, that obviously impacts investments, but I did definitely appreciate that there were folks from different backgrounds, because I think a lot of times, you know, myself being in that, in this world of investments, um, it is the same folks, even folks like me and Pat who come from a more, you know, Armenian, Middle, Middle, Middle Eastern background. You don't see many of us in the U.S. I'm sure they're investing, you know, in the Middle East and they're the ones giving, you know, the LP capital to a lot of the investors here. But you don't see a lot of folks that are like us or, you know, are black or are Asian or are Mexican. And I think as a result, what happens is you don't have a lot of people entering that industry. You know, how, how do we change that? Well, clearly, if you have uh, some people who can become role models who might have a Middle East background or ethnicity, it probably helps other people with that background and ethnicity. Um, I did. I tried to focus on U.S. investors here because if I did global investors in one book, I was afraid I would it'd be too diffuse and too complicated to put together, and uh, people would be upset if I didn't include their country or so forth. So sure. I didn't really include people uh, from the let's say the Middle East sovereign wealth funds or the Chinese sovereign wealth funds or so forth, maybe another book. If this book does well, then maybe I'll do something like that. But the real point I'm trying to get at, at the book is that investing is complicated, and I give points on what I think you need to do, but also I'm trying to say it's actually a good thing for our country. In other words, if you become a doctor, while you're not uninterested in the making the money associated with being a doctor, you recognize you make more than being a teacher, you also know that you have um, some willingness and ability to help other people. That's what doctors are supposed to do. Investors are not generally seen as helping other people. They're generally seen as kind of greedy people who are trying to make the maximum amount of money they can. That's what this profession is all about, investing money 
to make more money. It's not about solving social problems. But I've tried to point out that actually, if you have good investors, they do give money to good companies, and those companies become the Moderna or the Facebooks or the or the Googles, and ultimately it does create jobs and, and can help society. So the venture investors that gave money to Moderna obviously did a great thing for society. And so I'm trying to tell people that who are investors or who look at investors, don't look down on these people and don't feel bad about your profession if your purpose is to make money, because in the end, if you're good at this, you'll actually help your society. Right. David, how, how, how do we change that narrative, though? Because that's a point that you know we discuss at our company is that at the end of the day, we're trying to have some sort of a return for our investors. But I don't think that that is you know, enough to convince other folks, especially people that are in our age bracket, let's call them 20 to 35, to join the industry because they do want to see impact, right? How, how do we change that narrative? And, and how, I mean, how do you do that? Well, of course, now there is this phenomenon that I do address a bit called ESG. Yep. Where we're, we're trying to say that investments can be made with very good ESG focuses on mine. But let's suppose you don't care about ESG. You just want to be investing in biotech companies. You don't care about ESG. I, my point is that if you do well, um, you can become a role model. And one of the other things that, that investors do, if they're very good, is they become philanthropists. So a lot of investors have made a lot of money, and almost everybody in this book is now a philanthropist because they made a fair amount of money. And I think that's a good thing for society, too. So overall, I'm trying to convey the message that investing is not a bad thing for society, even if it's not focused on ESG. Yeah. We talk about role models and then also, you know, speaking of like access to this information, you know, many, many folks growing up don't even have exposure to this, right? Maybe they're, they're just not born in certain circumstances to understand the investing world. And we talk about the education system in America and financial literacy and all these things, you know, if, if we're teaching, you know, younger kids, these things correctly, or if, if we're doing it at all, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that, um, you know, the American education system needs to do a better job uh, teaching people at a young age how to invest? Because you also mentioned in the book how, you know, in the past, uh, you know, access to even certain investing platforms and deals and things like that were only kind of reserved for, you know, a certain group of people. Right. And now that kind of has become a little bit more open and democratized and anyone can sort of be an investor. But the downside to that is if you don't really know what you're doing, you're just going to lose a bunch of money, unfortunately. And, and as a society, we don't want to see that. So anyways, I'm just um, curious. Look, to hear there's thoughts. no perfect way to deal with this. And other books I've written, I've dealt with the fact that we don't have civics education as good as we should be. We also don't have financial literacy very much. So you can go through school um, high school and college and graduate school and never learn anything about financial literacy or how to invest any money um, because we don't require you to learn anything about it. I do think it'd be a good idea if in high school or junior high school, people were taught the basics of money and the basics of finance system and the basics of investing, even if they're not going to be a professional investor. So they know what, what, what they're doing when they get some money. Remember, everybody is almost everybody's an investor because you have a pension fund, you have some kind of endowment for a place that you might work and making sure you understand what those people that are doing it day to day are, are doing with your money is an important thing. One thing that I really found interesting throughout your book are, you know, the traits of folks that become great investors. Um, some of the ones that were interesting were those that were raised in like a blue collar background, for example, or middle class background or folks who failed at a previous job or previous career that ended up becoming investments or they had a big investment failure. You know, there's there's a whole 
kind of list of these traits that a good, great investor has. Do you think that there is some form, though, of an X factor that goes beyond the traits of being a good investor? Well, I think you need to have an inherent ambition in life to actually do something and make something of yourself. So if you have these qualities I outlined, but you really don't want to make something of yourself or you really don't care about doing something of, of note, you, you probably won't be a good investor. That's true of any profession. You have to really have some ambition. Where do we give people ambition? Well, we tend to do it at home and, and kind of instilling in our children the idea they should do something useful with their life and they should try to you know, be good at whatever they do. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask is how do you get someone to become ambitious or is it just purely innate? I mean, there's a lot of smart people around me that I almost wish they were more ambitious and did something more than just what they do. You know, have you studied ambition? I can't say that I have. I, you know, in my own case, I came from a modest background and my parents were not college or high school educated. So I kind of felt that if I was going to get anywhere, I had to have some ambition because my parents couldn't give me money or access to things. In my own case, uh, my children have grown up in a fairly privileged environment, of course, but um, they have a fair amount of ambition. They're all in private equity. They all have MBAs. They're all investing. You know, they're all pretty hard workers. Um, I keep saying to them, don't work so hard. Spend some time with your father, but they don't seem that interested. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned, um, you know, kind of learning a lot from all these different investors. Is there one thing in particular that you can think of that, and obviously, you know, you've been in investing yes. your whole career too, but is there anything that you picked up along the way, just interviewing these folks that you're oh. like, wow, I, I, I can't believe I didn't know that before. And that's, that's so interesting. Some, oh, some the, the most obvious thing would be, and to answer your question, I think it is the answer is that is the willingness to buck conventional wisdom. In any given area of society or in any given area of human endeavor, there's always the conventional wisdom that is set in. So um, uh, if you're willing to go along with the conventional wisdom, you won't probably rise up and do anything more than everybody else is doing. What you have to do is say, as Darwin did, I think there's an evolution that is an explanation for life on Earth, and you, you've been willing to have people criticize you. And uh, many of the people that have been great investors, or all of them really, have had a, a willingness to buck conventional wisdom, invest where people tell you not to invest or do it at a time when people say it's not a good time to invest. You have to have a willingness to, to be strong and people tell you you're wrong and you have to be willing to fight through and say, no, I am right or I, I will be proven right. And that's what they all have in common. Yeah. And it seems as though, speaking of conventional wisdom, um, it seems as though most conventional wisdom used to be contrarianism at some point and then it becomes conventional wisdom and then now you're everyone's kind of just thinking of what's the right. you know contrarian way of going about this now I, I, like at what point in when it comes to investing since it is highly you know um like you can you can kind of measure it in some sort of way to kind of see how the performance is like when does that happen when is that point when you you realize maybe what i've been thinking is conventional wisdom and now you need to i need to attack oh, this in conventional wisdom, what I mean is that uh, people say, let's say right now, for example, people will tell you not a good time to invest. The markets are down. The markets are choppy. Technology stocks are down. Um, actually, that's the best time to invest when there's people uh, who would say there's blood in the streets. That's when you really make great, great fortunes, fortunes as an investor. When you're investing at the top of the market, that's usually not a uh, prescription for success. The most common mistake that it, the average investor makes 
is when the stock market's going down, they get out. When the stock market's going up, they come in. Uh, it should be the opposite. It does take some courage to be able to say when the stock market's collapsing, now's the time to get in there. Maybe I won't hit the bottom. I won't time the bottom exquisitely well, but I'll be there near the bottom and I'll, I'll have things when they rise up. That takes a lot of courage to do for some people who are not professional investors. Mm -hmm. So, David, when we last spoke and we were more focused on the topic of leadership at the time, you obviously talked about how you started Carlisle and, you know, it was after your time at the, with the Carter administration. Um, but I want to kind of focus on what made you think you were going to be successful as an investor or maybe, maybe not, you know, but why did you start Carlisle? Well, I started it because I was... After I left the White House, I was practicing law. I didn't have my heart in it. I really didn't enjoy it. And you can't be great at anything or really be that much of a success if you don't enjoy it. You don't win the Nobel Prize for hating what you do. And so mm -hmm. when I read about Bill Simon, a former Secretary of Treasury, doing a business deal called Gibson Greeting Cards, a leverage buyout, and he made on a $300,000 investment about $60 million in 18 months, I said, that's better than practicing law. I didn't know exactly what a leverage buyout was. <laughs> I ultimately learned a little bit more and, and put the team together. I can't tell you at the beginning, I thought I would be able to build a global firm or that it would be necessarily that successful. I thought it'd be better than practicing law. As it turned out, the private equity world mushroomed and grew and uh, we had a good track record. And so the firm grew, but I can't tell you, I was sure it was going to be successful at the beginning. And almost anybody that starts a company who is convinced it will be successful at the beginning is probably delusional. Because almost everybody that's an entrepreneur recognizes things go down before they go up and you've got lots of challenges. And we had lots of challenges about, you know, keeping, keeping going in the early years. You mentioned the word track record. I mean, I think a lot of folks, you know, that are listening or, you know, maybe not listening, but wants, want to become investors. One of the things or one of the hurdles or one of the challenges that you run into when you're raising money, for example, for a fund or a company is the question of, hey, David, what's your track record? When's the last time you invested in real estate? When's the last time you did a leverage buyout? When's the last time you made money investing in a company? Were you yeah. asked those questions? And if so, how did, how did you answer them? Well, in the beginning, you obviously don't have a track record. So you can say, well, look at our charming personality and look how honest we are and look how hardworking we are. And you do the best you can to sell whatever assets you have. We didn't have a track record. But we weren't asking for people to tie up their money for a long period of time. Initially, we we're just saying, come into what's one deal. After we developed a track record after a number of years, we then could go out and raise a fund. And people would say, well, you only have uh, five deals or 10 deals. We want to see, you know, 10 years of deals. So it takes a while to develop a track record. But as a general rule of thumb, um, if you're reasonably successful in your first three, four, five deals, you probably can go out and raise a blind pool fund. And today... Of course, almost everybody's raising a blind pool fund for something or another. It's a very, very crowded market. When does that end? What do you think the issue is now? Well, I think everybody is trying to raise money and everybody probably isn't going to get great returns. I think people are going to lower their expectations of the rates of return they're going to get. And therefore, uh, you won't have to achieve the heroic returns that some people did years ago. But take the heroic returns we've seen up until recently in the venture capital world. Companies like uh, Snowflake or Coinbase were spectacular successes in the venture capital market. There are a couple others that are likely to come out like Stripe and others that are probably going to be great successes as well. And so when you see those deals, you kind of say, well, maybe I should try this. And But you should recognize that those deals are very, very rare. And most uh, venture capital money probably doesn't produce a return. 
Right. And I wonder what happened. Speaking of venture capital, I'm not sure how much insight you got into this. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think you had only you only interviewed Mark Andreessen, right? There's one venture capital. Well, I interviewed Michael Marit, Marwitz, who was the head oh, of Sequoia. Yeah. Correct. Um, he, um, built, he built probably the leading venture firm of the last five years. They just had spectacular successes. Yeah. I'm not sure how much insight you got into this, but what do you think happens in an industry like venture capital where, um, you know, once people start seeing or have seen so, so much return there, have, in, have, have entered the market, and now it's just this like heavy, heavily competitive space where there are so many different, you know, venture capitalists that are kind of ch- trying to chase the good deals, like the good performing companies that even Mark mentioned have their kind of, they have their choice like they could choose who they want as their investor and they usually go for the top investors like an Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia Capital or Kleiner Perkins or some of these you know historic firms you know what happens there well obviously the more success you have the more money comes to you the more money you have it's probably less likely you're going to produce these the Googles and the Facebook kind of deals because it just tends you have to put out so much money and and many of these younger entrepreneurs may be intimidated by coming to your firm and trying to get money from you when you're so famous. But in the end, I think if returns come down, they'll still be pretty good. So private equity returns and venture capital returns have outperformed uh, the market uh, for public equities for the last 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years or so. It may outperform by a lower amount in the future, but probably still enough to justify people putting money into these good funds. Now, track record is important. And as I point out in the book, Track record is one of the most important criteria when you're looking at investing in a fund, but there's no guarantee that a prior track record will produce a wonderful track record in the future. Some people may leave. The, the opportunity that, that they achieved in the, in the investment area in the first prior fund may not be available in the future. Lots of factors. And obviously, it's hard to pick which funds are going to be outperform in the market in the next three, four, five years. Nobody really knows. David, you know, that's an interesting point and something I think about often, even, you know, in the company that I'm at and we're, we're mainly commercial real estate investors is just innovation at these firms and, you know, moving forward and growing and staying with the times in a sense, you know, you have companies like Blackstone, BlackRock, Carlisle, KKR. These are massive, massive companies with billions and hundreds of billions of assets under management. How do you, you know, and I know obviously you know Carlisle well, uh, how do you innovate from within to stay with the times? Because at times it just feels like it can become a very stale industry where not a lot is changing. Well, there's no doubt that when you are um, doing well, you tend to keep doing what you did. That would be described as what doing well. Uh, Very rarely do you get somebody saying, I did really well for five years or 10 years. Now I'm going to break up my pattern, do things differently because you generally don't do that. So what happens is it's true of all parts of life and parts of business. As something gets bigger and it gets unwieldy, it can become uh, sclerotic and may not be able to produce the the excitements and the great returns of the past. That's why younger firms will come along. And the trick in the investment business is often finding out who's going to be next, the next Andreessen Horowitz, who's going to be the next Sequoia, who's going to be the next Kleiner Perkins, and trying to to make bets on that, and nobody will know how to do it perfectly. But it's a very challenge when you when you have a company like Carlisle, you don't want to be so um, hidebound that you don't look for changes in the future. And one of the best ways is to talk to younger people and give younger people more and more authority. So people my age are unlikely to understand the best new um, kind of uh, video games, let's say, 
uh, younger people are probably going to going to be able to, to do that. And therefore, if you want to invest in video games, have younger people. Uh, you know, you you mentioned, um, or I think you are one of the subjects mentioned Warren Buffett, who's obviously one right. probably the single greatest investor of, of all time if you look at it. Uh, and one of the main reasons is because he just plays this long term game, right? Like when he when he sees a a, a company that he thinks is run well or valuable he'll buy and hold for a long long time and obviously see returns over time and i think it might have been ron baron in the book that also kind of you know yeah. has a similar mindset oh. and one thing that one thing that we kind of see is you know people tend to try to balance out their short-term lives with their long-term lives right short term you don't you know life is short they say enjoy it enjoy the day enjoy the moment and try to you know you know, enjoy as much as you can now because you don't know how long you're going to live. But then you also want to plan for your future and invest accordingly to make sure that, hey, like ho hopefully you do live a long time and then you could enjoy, you know, enjoy your investments or whatever, your life for a long time. And so how, how does one kind of, in your opinion, balance these two out of like today and also tomorrow? Well, Warren Buffett's motto is uh, obviously being very smart and, and having certain principles and not deviating from those principles. So he likes to buy things that are, are called value investments, the things where he's buying something that's really worth a dollar, uh, but he's paying 50 cents for it. But he has two other methods that have been helpful to him. Once he buys it, he rarely sells it. And, he rare, and by rarely selling it, he avoids two problems. One, transaction costs, fees to people. And secondly, taxes. So if you don't have to pay taxes and you don't have to pay transaction costs, the amount of money you have is compounding at a, with more money every every year than it would be if you're selling things and you're dealing paying with taxes. So by rarely ever selling things, he has not had to pay transaction costs or taxes. I mean, his company pays taxes, but he'd pay a lot more taxes if he was doing a lot of selling of things. Right, David, as an individual investor, you know, do you think it's better to be a generalist or a specialist? As a, if you're, a, if you have another profession, in other words, let's suppose you're a doctor or a dentist. I don't think you can um, keep up with the markets that much and be able to be a professional investor. I would recommend trying to find one area that you really are interested in and maybe learn a lot about it and be a specialist in it. Because I think it's hard to know everything about any, any given area or every, everything about everything. And therefore, if you are, let's suppose you're a doctor, but you know something about biotech, well, then specialize in that and, and therefore more likely to understand what's going on. If you're in your case, you guys are real estate guys. Is that right? Yeah, I work at a real estate firm. Yep. So, you know, therefore, if you're looking at investing in, in, in companies, maybe REITs or, or real estate funds or things that you really would know the people and know what they're doing, uh, as you know, in real estate, there's so many different types of real estate. Right. Um, Self-storage is a big one right now. Um, logistics is very popular right now. Out of favor of big city office buildings. But, you know, specializing in one area and then kind of knowing what's going on there is very helpful. If you were to start a new, let's call it, real estate fund today, what would you invest in? Obviously, well, money not being an issue. Yeah. Um, I would say areas that are attractive in real estate today in my view, are one, self-storage is a big thing. If you're familiar with that, that's where your, your people are moving all the time these days and they're storing their stuff because they think they're going to use it later, but they probably don't. <laughs> Secondly is um, uh, residential uh, for rent. In other words, 
more and more people are not younger people are not buying houses. They're renting uh, for a lot of reasons that are uh, related to where our society is going. So building uh, rental units that are reasonably good is another attractive area. Another area is logistics. Now, while we may have overbuilt the logistics warehouses in the United States a bit, uh, I think that's a generally been a historically a, a good area. Um, things related to the demographics of the, of the society is our society is aging. We're going to have more assisted living homes and more retirement communities and therefore investing in the real estate as opposed to the operations of, of things like re- retirement centers or assisted living centers will probably be a bit good investment. Um, this might be an obvious answer or question, but curious to hear your thoughts. Um, when looking at potential investment areas, you know, you, you talk about these areas in real estate. Um, obviously, you can read about trends and things like that. What other things are you looking at? The fact that they can cash flow at a certain point in the future, you know, like there's a, there's some sort of well, uh, real, yeah. real estate. You're dependent. You're looking at different kinds of things. One, what kind of rate of return do you want? Mm-hmm. Um, and as you know, in real estate, there's a, a phrase called a cap rate, capitalization rate. And that basically means when you buy something, what is the basic rate of return you're going to get uh, after you own the asset? Is it 4% a year, 5% a year? Obviously, once you sell the asset, you hope to get a higher rate of return. But you want to make sure you're, you're, real, you're comfortable with the cap rate or in the rate of return. So if you invest in a kind of asset where the cap rate is 5% and maybe you sell it, you ultimately get a return of 8 or 9%. Well, is that adequate enough compared to what you could get by putting your money in venture capital or in some other area? So you have to be realistic about what rate of return you want and what kind, what kind of risk you're willing to take to get that rate of return. So let's suppose I told you you could invest in, you could get 9% cap rate as long as you want by investing in, uh, let's say, office buildings in Boston. And, you, you know, is 9% okay? And you know you can have an ad infinitum. Yeah, it might be, and you might not be willing to take it. Well, it also depends on how long you hold that, right? Like 9% over 10 years isn't right. great. 9% in a year, oh, I'll 9%. take that. I'm, I'm talking about annual, annualized yeah, rates yeah, of return, yeah. 9%. So um, in all these cap rates, I'm talking about annualized rates of return. Yeah. But, but boiling it down to an even more basic level, regardless, it, it could be real estate, it could be stocks, it could be cryptocurrencies, it could be any type of investment, you know, asset class or what have you. What makes what makes something like what is the what is the primary thing that makes something an asset class? Is it what people? Uh, an yeah. asset class is when when there's an area of activity that people want to invest in, and money is going into that area, and it becomes an asset class. So, who would have thought that SPACs were an asset class? Right. Uh, who would have thought that uh, infrastructure was an asset class twenty years ago, twenty five years ago? Now it's an asset class. Um, and everybody wants to be in the infrastructure, not everybody, but a lot of people, because very predictable rates of return uh, for long term hold, um, modest tax uh, consequences. So a lot of a lot of factors there. Do we yeah. need more investors in the world? You mean professional investors or people? Is that what you mean? Yeah, more professional investors. Well, we need really more great professional investors. I mean, they're. <laughs> Um, I don't know if we need more investors, but we need more people that I think are financially literate so they understand what's going on in the financial markets. We need more people that are determined to really do a great first-class job in, in, in investing, finding new companies, helping new companies get going. Um, I think it's not wouldn't be a bad idea to have more of those people. Yeah. Um, going back to my question about asset classes, I'm curious. Uh, you know, if, if you've ever thought about this um, in terms of, you know, 
some of the cutting edge things you mentioned, cryptocurrency SPACs, who would have thought, like you said, is there anything that you would imagine could become an asset class in the future that isn't now? Like, could humans become asset classes? Could we invest in other people that we believe long-term are going to create value? Well, we invest in people every day in some sense. Right. I guess but like uh, in, in a securitized fashion, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I have to think about that. But for example, right now, would you say NFTs are an asset class or not? Some people would <laughs> say think, they are going to be. I, yeah. I, I think both Pat and I are hesitant. I think we would say they pro- people probably would assume they are, but it's unfortunate, in my opinion. <laughs> well, or, or take things that aren't NFTs, but take baseball cards. Right. I, yeah. I read that yesterday that uh, a Mickey Mantle 1958 card went for $2 million. And I, I didn't realize it, but baseball cards are, you know, maybe not the biggest asset class, but they're people that are buying and selling a, uh, baseball cards all the right. time. Yeah. And I right. think that's where like an NFT can kind of have some sort of impact is like eventually it'll go from being the, that card being on paper to being in a digital format and being, you know, a rare commodity to, to have. And I do think that there's some aspect of that. I mean, during the pandemic, we saw, you know, all these basketball, baseball, football, and NFTs just spike. So, I mean, you know, to answer your question, I do, th- I do think that people are putting their money there. And if that's the definition of an asset class, then, then yeah, I think it's fair to say that they are. What, and what do you – yeah, go ahead. Sorry, David. I think you're going to answer well, For example, more. let's suppose you get your genes – you do a 23andMe and you learn what your genes are and so forth. And uh, let's suppose you get your, your entire genome map. Um, well, maybe people will buy the information that comes from people's genomes and maybe they'll be buying and selling genome information in the future. We don't know. I was listening to your podcast the other day with Ann Wajiki, with, who's the founder of 23andMe. Did you get your results back? Anything interesting? I'm getting it on August the 15th, uh, whatever uh, today is. Uh, you look like it. you're 1% Armenian. That's just my yeah. guess, but hey. Um, it's not impossible. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. My, my ancestors probably were spending a fair amount of time, uh, you know, doing things maybe that I'd be surprised to learn about. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you, you brought up NFTs and just crypto cryptocurrencies and and this whole tokenization of of everything is creating this new world that we didn't know could exist right like things things are becoming tokenized and you know becoming an asset what impact do you think that makes in in the world like when you know for example like in the situation of having like some sort of virtual metaverse space where everything is like almost an asset and everyone's just kind of exchanging things and and just doing things and living on a regular basis but Everything is kind of, you know, it, as a transaction. I guess. Do you think well, that has like any negative impacts or positive impacts? Or, I, you know, I'm not young enough or smart enough to really figure that one out. I would say I'll leave that to the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. But yeah. I say, don't assume that what the asset classes we have today are they going to be the asset classes of 20 years from now. For example, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, who would have thought that? Uh, you know, some of the things we're now thinking are great asset classes would have been asset classes. 20 years ago, um, nobody focused on ESG. Nobody focused on infrastructure. Nobody focused on SPACs. Nobody focused on cryptocurrencies 20 years ago. Now, cryptocurrencies, while the market's gone down a fair bit, there's a lot of people still buying them. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm not as well versed on, on the ESG side, but I'm just curious you know, I think probably, probably probably part of the reason why people weren't as focused on it is because, it, it, you know, maybe there wasn't a way to make a serious return on helping, you know, the environment, for example. 
what has changed? Why are people starting to 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 start focusing there? I understand like the the impact it could make, m- perhaps non monetary, but from a monetary side, has anything changed where it's becoming an attractive asset class or area to invest in? Um, well, this has changed. Um, it used to be that people only cared about the highest rate of return and the maximum uh, profit you could realize. Now people think that if you are concerned about ESG, um, you don't necessarily have a lower rate of return because that was the conventional wisdom. But they would say that young, your employees increasingly care about ESG. Your customers increasingly care about ESG. Your suppliers increasingly care about ESG. So if you're good on ESG, you'll get better customers, better employees, better suppliers. Mm-hmm. That's the theory. And as more and more people who are investors want to be investing in companies that are strong in ESG, the ESG strong companies will do better. That's the theory. And now, there is yeah. a reaction against that. Right now, there's a view that the Ukrainian situation has shown us how dependent we are, for example, on a conventional uh, carbon energy. And therefore, the obsession with ESG and climate change may be backfiring in the view of some people because some people now feel that it's not, it's hurting us. Some people say that. Mm-hmm. And just to add a little bit of color, I know we've been throwing around the word ESG. For those that don't know, that stands for environmental, social, and governance. Um, you know, environmental is obviously how is my investment going to impact the gov- the environment. The social aspect is things like equity, diversity, inclusion, and then governance is, you know, the way the company is governed and the stakeholder interests, things of that nature. And I was actually recently at a meeting with uh, folks at JP Morgan. And one of the questions that I asked were, you know, what are your clients asking about ESG? Is it making an impact when it comes to investments? And the answer that I got from them was absolutely. It's one of the first questions that our, our clients are asking because what's happening is, and these were, these were the private bank folks, a lot of the grandchildren and children of, you know, let's say of David are taking over and they care more about the environment or it's more top of mind. They care more about diversity. And so they're telling their, you know, advisors, Hey, we want to invest in funds and, you know, in real estate, you know, companies and operators that are focused on ESG. And it's interesting that one of the things they mentioned was that in Europe, this has been the case for about 20 years or so where it's like a no brainer that the investments have an ESG focus. Whereas here we're kind of behind. So, you know, David, why do you think that is? Why do you think the U.S. is behind on this? You know, you would think that we'd be kind of the leaders. Well, a couple of reasons. One, the uh, United States is a gigantic producer of carbon energy, uh, more so than Europe. Um, some of the U- European Scandinavian countries and uh, companies in, in uh, you know, Denmark and, and the Netherlands have been very concerned about these climate change related issues. So, they're not producing energy, so there's no political constituency, as we have in the United States, for, behind the production of energy. Uh, I think uh, Europe is probably more liberal in some respects, more progressive, if that's the right word, than the United States in some respects. Um, so that's probably the reason. How involved are you at Carlisle still? Well, um, I am the chairman, and I'm one of the biggest shareholders. And uh, we've had a, a change in ex- uh, executives recently. And so I'll probably be spending more time at Carlisle than I have uh, recently, yes. Are you happy about that? Well. The spending more time piece? Am I happy? Um, Well, I have, I like working. So I, uh, you know, I guess so. I mean, Carlisle is something I conceived of and helped build and ran for many years. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to do well. So 
uh, whatever I can do to help the company. Yeah. But uh, I am a bit of a workaholic. So saying it's going to take more time is not something that scares me. Yeah. Personally speaking, outside of private equity, um, is there like an, an investment area that you're most excited about or want to continue to invest in more? Well, um, I am uh, helping my children and some of their, they have some private, each of my children has their own private equity kind of business. And one of my daughters uh, is, is uh, involved in healthy food. And so I think if I uh, invest more in that area and, and eat more healthy food, maybe I'll be healthier. <laughs> I, I interviewed a person yesterday for my TV show, Peer to Peer, um, whose name is Ari Emanuel. And Ari Emanuel mm-hmm. is a, you know, an agent. And now he runs uh, Endeavor. But he's, um, you know, he spends two hours a day exercising and then he, uh, he eats only vegan. He's very, very healthy. And, uh, you know, there I, was a photo I, that came out with him and Elon yeah. Musk on the boat. Yeah, he good looking guy for, you know, I'm not sure how old he is. But. He's 62 <laughs> years old. And uh, I would yep. say he's in pretty good shape, right? Yeah, yep, and David, if yep. you haven't met or spoken to Seth Goldman yet, he's definitely worth speaking to about that topic. He's the founder of, um, well, he Honest originally tea. founded Honest Tea, and then now he has a company called Eat the Change, and he's a he's a vegan and completely focused on that industry, which, you know, Pat and I have been now doing this podcast for almost five years, and in the last year, we've seen more folks that we've spoken to in that healthy you know, alternative CPG space where they are focused on creating better products. I mean, I mean, if thinking, speaking of asset classes, does, you know, are we going to see like these micro asset classes where we can start investing in companies or startups or even like ETF type startups where, where it has a, you know, whole group of companies that are focused on a similar mission. Right. Well, um, you know, could well be the case. Um, I think you're going to see a lot more of that. I know a lot of younger people are very, very conscious about uh, their health and uh, and so forth. And I suspect you'll see more people investing in that area. What has been your personal biggest or or best performing investment and worst performing investment? Well, I guess the worst performing are the ones I didn't do when I should have done. So I didn't do Facebook when I had a chance. When Mark yep. was in uh, college, and I kind of sold my uh, our stock in uh, Amazon as soon as we could, right after the IPO, that was probably you could say the biggest mistakes. We turned down Mark Andreessen when he was out of college, uh, trying to raise money for what became Netscape. So those are ones I keep remembering. Um, but in terms of best investments, you know, I guess the best investment was actually starting Carlisle because it ultimately produced the greatest amount of uh, wealth for me. So you could say that whole firm was my best investment. One of the biggest investments I think that we don't talk about often or we don't think about often is our time um, and yeah. managing our time and being efficient with our time. How have you invested in time for yourself? Well, I'm pretty conscious of that. As I tell people when I talk about philanthropy, Philanthropy is great, but the most valuable thing you can give is your time because you can't get more of it. Uh, you can get more money, but you can never get more time. So I um, have three people that help me with my schedule every day, and we go through all the, the requests for speeches or interviews or or whatever meetings and try to allocate them as best I can. And then I'm not good at saying no, so I generally try to compress into the day as many possible things from seven in the morning to eight at night. And um, you know, maybe I'm overworked in one area. And some people would say I should uh, not do as many things I'm doing, but I enjoy everything I'm doing. 
So I keep doing it. Yeah. We talked about how the last book was how to lead. This is how to invest. Um, are you going to continue the how-to series? Is there anything uh, else you're thinking about? I am working on another book. Which The next one will maybe on entrepreneurship, maybe how to be an entrepreneur building companies. I'm also looking at another history book. So I just want to get them done as soon as I can before my brain collapses. Are you doing yeah. anything so that your brain doesn't collapse? Uh well, I read a lot and uh, I try to exercise a little bit, but not as much as I should. You know, obviously genetics is a big, big factor. And my parents made it to their middle eight, mid eighties and without dementia or anything like that, you know, dementia is something you can't really completely control. So I, a number of friends of mine have, um, you know, had health challenges that they meet, met their, in their seventies or eighties. And so you just don't know what's going to happen. And so like both of you guys, I don't know if your parents are alive, but you have genes that would make you think you're going to make it through your 90 years old? Hopefully. 90 and healthy instead of 90 and can't, yeah. can't figure anything out. Uh, one thing I want to ask, I know you had, you know, I'll use the word recently, but I don't, re- I don't recall how long ago it was. Uh, you interviewed Nubar Afayan, who's the founder of Moderna. We actually interviewed Nubar. A well, he's Ar- Armenian. He is Armenian. You know, he is Armenian. Pat and I met him about five years ago. We actually... Uh, Pat and I were part of an Armenian organization and we honored him in 2017 for just the work he had done in his life. And this is pre obviously COVID. Um, so, you know, I, I wish at the time Pat and I had invested in Moderna, uh, after meeting Nubar, um, he talks about this concept of parallel entrepreneurship and he's obviously a very, very talented entrepreneur and investor. What are your thoughts on parallel entrepreneurship and his overall mindset and perhaps maybe other folks that you are impressed with because from the interview i could tell that you're definitely impressed with just his mindset and the way he thinks about things yeah um i uh made a mistake probably i should have included him in the book i had the interview done already and i should have put it in the book i i made a mistake probably in hindsight and next uh, book yeah i'll get him in the next book um look he's a very talented person and interestingly if you listen to the interview he was playing basketball on Sundays for like two or three years. I mean, like a decade or so with people and nobody knew what he, what he did and he never mentioned anybody. And then when Moderna came out, they kind of figured it out. So he's very low key, very modest, very successful. Um, you know, I, I'd say um, he's a very smart guy, very talented, and he's given a lot back to Armenia, as you probably know. Mm-hmm. The yeah. concept of parallel entrepreneurship that he talks about, do you think more folks that want to build companies should build companies in that fashion? Well, obviously it works. Um, so I, I'd say probably it's a good idea, but companies are idiosyncratic and you never know what formula is going to be best for building a company, but he seems to have a pretty good track record. I'd say. Mm-hmm. If you were us interviewing you, what was, what is something that you would ask yourself? Well, um, I guess it, it is, uh, you know, do you feel that, uh, your books are worth reading by people and why should somebody bother reading the book? I guess. And, and what's the answer? Answer is it's designed to be a relatively easily read book. It's you can pick it up and any, you read it from the beginning in the middle of the end. It's in a conversational tone, obviously. And, um, it's designed to tell people more about the investing world, which is an important part of their life now, because even if they don't think they're investors, money's being invested on their behalf by pension funds and others. And almost everybody who's likely to read the book is somebody that probably has enough money to do some investing at some point in their life. Mm-hmm. Right. Or just even know about it prior to, to gaining money, right. To, to know. I guess the other question to... I'd ask is, uh, 
you know, do I feel Armenians are better invest, better, uh, better interviewers than uh, non-Armenians? I guess that would be an important question. I would say that, you know, we are just as good as anybody else. I think just like investing, um, I think it takes a lot of time, a lot of practice. I mean, you're obviously a great interviewer yourself. And I think, you know, when Pat and I get asked this question, it really comes down to one thing that you have to be genuinely curious, not not like a bullshit curious, like, I don't really give a shit, you're just another person. I think you have to genuinely care about that other person's responses, whether or not you agree with them, um, and just giving them the opportunity to share their thoughts. And I, I think that, you know, both Pat and I didn't study journalism. I mean, Pat went to business school, I went to law school. We're not you know, journalists or communicators or whatever it may be. I think we just genuinely are interested in other people and their stories. So, you know, I encourage people that are curious to meet with people because that's honestly, this is like the MBA that Pat and I have gotten through interviewing folks like yourself. That's exactly what what I love about your interview style, David. I think we talked about it last time is you kind of come across, you, you, you come across as someone who's learning you might know some of this stuff already, but you're, you, you, you come across as someone who's learning it for the first time and you're asking questions like a, a, a little kid maybe would ask when they're first, you know, being exposed to, to like a new concept or something like that. And it oh, makes for wow. a easy, it makes for a very easy listen and an easy read. And I think that is very apparent in the book as well. It's like the, the same as your, obviously it's your well, interviews. Don't, and don't, so. compete, don't try to get a TV show. I don't need more competition. Okay? <laughs> yeah. We're good. No, no, no. We will, we will not be competing. We will not be competing. So uh, weren't there two Armenian brothers that were that have a radio show years ago on fixing cars or something like that? That, that sounds like something Armenians would do. Yeah, so sure. uh, I, I wouldn't put it past them. All right. Okay. All right. So anyway, you guys do a pretty good job. And if you ask me the question, which of you two is better, I wouldn't answer that question. You're both very good. Uh, well, we appreciate, you, we appreciate the dishonesty. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you. Good to see you.